Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, Sean here. Families will often reach out to try and understand why their loved one has DLD. But what do we really know about the genetics of DLD? Today, I'm talking with Professor Angela Morgan, who leads the speech and language group at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute about her research into DLD and genetics. Welcome to this month's episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I'm very excited to talk to the lovely Angela Morgan. Angela, I might get you to start by talking about your connection to DLD and maybe share with our listeners a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Sean. It's lovely to be talking to you. And yeah, so in terms of DLD, I've been a speech pathologist now for 25 years. And my first role was actually going back to Tasmania, where I'm from, a Taswegian, and working in the education department. So that's where really my one of my passions um, for DLD was ignited and very much had a focus on working with children with DLD there and also engaged a lot with families in Tasmania, actually. There were very strong family and advocacy support groups in Tasmania for children with DLD, trying to advocate for more support at that time, which was more a bit more SLI or, or general language disorder at that time. Uh, so I suppose, yeah, and since then, as I have probably more of a focus on speech disorder, as most people know as well, um, given the links between speech disorder and reading issues and DLD um, in that area of my work ongoing throughout all my research and other clinical practice, I've had that link with DLD as well. Amazing. You've had such a wide range of areas that you've researched, which I love, and you've talked about speech and language, and we know that it's not always very clear or an easy system to delineate between, but you're particularly well known for your work in genetics. Would you mind providing our listeners with perhaps a brief explanation of what you mean by the term genetics and maybe why you think researching genetics is important, um, particularly for those sorts of populations we're talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. So genetics is really studying inheritance of what traits or what features we get from our mum and dad, essentially. Um, So what's passed down in our DNA or genes, our genetic code, um, to make us who we are. So that's really the essence of genetics, I guess. And when we think about genetics for speech and language disorders, we've known for years that these conditions are inherited. So we know we've seen large families in whom certain speech or language features might be shared. Um, So that's been obvious to us. But I think the really exciting new aspect of genetics is something where we now also understand that maybe mum and dad don't have a language or speech condition. But for the first time, there's been a genetic change when the DNA has been passed down from mum and dad. That means that for the first time, your child might have a speech or language condition. And that's called a de novo condition. De novo meaning original or first time. And we used to say that, call that a gene mutation that might have happened. But mutation's not a great word, is it? Let's face it. It's not got a great, um, not a good PR word. So I'm really pleased to say that now people in genetics talk about variation or variance, just a change in a gene that might lead to something that causes a speech or language disorder. Um, And then thinking about um, 
why I feel genetics is important. I suppose because I focus a lot on children who have very severe speech challenges, so something called apraxia of speech, um, alongside typically DLD as well, that one in three of the kids I see, we now find a genetic diagnosis. So it's where there's been a gene change that's happened from the DNA passed down from mum and dad to the child, and they now have this genetic condition that we've previously not known about and not understood in the context of these disorders. And for those families, when we talk to them, and we've done a lot of lovely work asking families what the value of a genetic diagnosis is with genetic counselling students, um, and we've got some works that will be published soon on that, families really say, you know, ending that diagnostic odyssey, that question of why does my child have this condition? Um, and then really for some of the children who have a very strong genetic condition, also forming a support group. So for example, if you have a condition like SETBP1 haploinsufficiency disorder, now these aren't always very friendly names for these conditions. They're often named after the gene where there was a change, so SETBP1. Um, families with that condition, for example, um, feel very isolated, their child has a certain type of presentation. And when they can meet with other families with children with shared presentation, they just really feel that sense of community and a shared experience and navigating the same challenges, barriers, how can we facilitate support for our children? So for me, there are a couple of the reasons um, that are important to our families. And then as a clinician, being able to understand whether or not there are shared features for people who have a similar genetic condition. You know, what's the prognosis like in a specific condition? That can really help us because what's the what are the questions families want to know? They want to know, will my child talk? If they will, will they be the same as their peers? And, you know, if so, how long is that going to take? So prognosis, long-term outcomes. And so if we can understand genetic conditions and look at those patterns in certain populations, sometimes they really unlock the answers to some of those questions, which are harder to find for idiopathic or where we don't know the known cause. Which we know for most people with DLD, the cause isn't known really, is it? Um, and I love that um, often I'll share an example. Families will email and say, you know, what was the cause? You know, what, you know, there's a lot of questioning why and how, and when you say to them, the cause for DLD is generally unknown, it's often not a very satisfying response for many people um, and particularly for me you know I want to know that I go to the doctor or the GP and the GP knows what I have and then what they can do about it but instead of doing you know genetic testing we often do these sort of observational assessments don't we we use all of these standardized or non-standardized tools to try and observe because we don't have a blood test or an x-ray or a, something instrumental that we can kind of go oh that's exactly what it is. And now I know exactly what to do. And for some families, you know, that's really hard to know that they're going into this sort of health service with people that, you know, there isn't a quick assessment, is there? Um, I think so. I think that's absolutely right. And yeah, DLD is a bit different. You're, you're right to what I just described around the apraxia and speech condition where we get those one in three sort mm. of genetic diagnoses. You're absolutely right, Sean. At the moment, for individuals with DLD, you know, over 99% of, of individuals with DLD wouldn't have at this time a known genetic cause mm. um, because we it is a more complex disorder. You're right. That's not a very 
nice thing to hear because it's not definitive it just sounds woolly and we always say well maybe there are a number of genes affected that's what we think at the moment um, that that a number of genes for different individuals might carry some risk mm. of speech and language disorder and then in combination that's why we get this profile rather than this single hit in a gene mm. which is very different for apraxia so at the moment you there is no as you say, doctor or test or anyone we could go to with GLD and, and get this simple um, diagnosis, unless you also have other features, perhaps, um, you know, a strong profile of autism or learning difficulties or um, ADHD. So when, or, or movement challenges, fine motor problems, etc. When When those come alongside DLD, sometimes we have a higher um, chance of potentially having one of those um, single gene changes um, but then that profile is a little bit different then those those are, are more severe perhaps um, presentations or yeah yeah a little so bit different. you've actually had and I'm going to say a, a very recent publication in fact I think just this week <laughs> Is that right, Angela? I think so. We timed yeah. this very well, didn't Beautifully. we? Couldn't have done any better. <laughs> yep. um, looking at, you know, a review of um, DLD and the genetics. But in summary, you're able to give maybe a little summary on what do we actually currently know about the genetics of DLD or maybe what we don't know? Um, are there any clear differences coming through in the research around maybe the genetics of a person with DLD versus a non-DLD individual? Yeah, so yeah, no, thank you for spruiking the nice paper that was led ah. by um, Hayley Mountford and Diane Newbury uh, in their group in Oxford and also yeah, Ruth Braden in my team. So it was a nice collaborative effort. And um, we, yes, we surveyed the literature on, on the genetics of DLD. And as you say, Sean, maybe a little bit more what we don't know, um, because still at this time, there have only been a couple of studies looking at possible single gene changes in individuals with DLD. And um, there really haven't been genes identified that seem to explain DLD for a large number of people. So we sort of talked about that a little bit before. But what what's people are looking into now are these things called genome-wide association studies. And it's a terror, and again, another terrible acronym, this GWAS acronym that we hear all the time. But the way of thinking about that's probably more thinking about taking a population of individuals in a broader sense. So rather than a single clinical case or person that might come to see us, we're looking at a broader population. So two really nice examples of these studies have just been done in our field and they're the largest of their kind. So I think they're the two nice ones to highlight. One's by um, a great postdoc, Elsa Ising and colleagues in Simon Fisher's lab in the Netherlands. And they had, I think, about 35,000 individuals where they pulled together different cohorts. So the early language in Victoria study cohort here in Australia and other cohorts internationally where people had acquired language data as well as DNA on people with DLD and they meta-analyzed and so they pulled all those different cohort data together and had about 35,000 individuals with um, DLD or, or with language data and reading information, spelling data and also then controls and, and looked and found 
um, a certain loci on a particular chromosome that wasn't in a specific genetic region or in one gene per se, but there are a few genes in that area. So that is the largest study of its kind, I suppose. Um, and that's what people are looking for now because we're going to need studies with tens of thousands of people because DLD is so complex and quite different. As we know, we know people with DLD have different um, things that they experience, different features from each other. Not everyone is the same. And so to try and work out what's common in the genetics um, of people with DLD and without DLD, we're going to need large samples. So that's been one study. And then a further follow-up study has just been done as well with um, Michelle Lincoln's group in St Andrews in Edinburgh, and that's a huge dyslexia. So not DLD per se, uh, again, more reading-based traits, but we know there's overlap between dyslexia and DLD for some individuals. And again, that had a huge sample and drew on data from the 23andMe study, the huge US-based genetic um, sort of population um, data. And they also then identified some loci. And that paper will come out in Nature Genetics soon, which I think is fantastic for our field because that's such a high-impact journal and will really start to highlight to other scientists outside of our area who don't give us as much airtime in speech and language and reading, it will make people sit up and listen, I think, and will draw more attention and hopefully more research into that area. So, Sean, that's a lot of information, no really specific genes. We're not coming out saying, oh, look, these 10 genes are the core genes, the DLD, because we're not at that point yet. But I suppose I'm trying to highlight that we've really come a long way, even in just the last couple of years, to getting these really bigger samples. And that's what's going to help us unlock what are the genes that are really influencing DLD. And what we're likely to find is tens or maybe many more genes that will be influencing and, and being part of the yeah, genetic contribution to, to DLD. We know it's going to be really complex and it won't just be genes. We've known for a long time too the importance of environment and then gene-environment interactions. But we're really a long way from understanding all of those things together. We'll try and get to the genes first. They're a bit more measurable at this time. And then hopefully people are still collecting really great environmental data. What, what do we mean by environmental data? You know, um, how many books are we reading? What other sorts of exposures do we have? Maybe diet, all sorts of things. We always get asked those questions. What about fish oil? You know, our families and people want to know how all these things influence us. Um, and hopefully over time, I guess that's the long-term aim is to understand how all of these factors contribute together. Yeah. And I think that what you've hit on so beautifully there is the fact that I think if I was to talk to somebody in the general population and most of the genetic conditions uh, uh, we know about or familiar with might be single gene um, changes or mutations or variations and how that presents means that there's some sort of maybe homogenous identity around that or they're more well known but what I think you, you know, what we've known for a long time is that language is complicated and certainly doesn't seem to be controlled by one single, um, you know, aspect of genetics. Um, there's all of these things coming together um, to kind of make this, I was going to say suit, but I don't think that's a very good description. You know, uh, us, you know, it's a very, it's a lovely mixture, whatever yes. you want. Melting whatever. pot. A yes, melting a lovely pot, melting pot. You know, of all of these genetics coming together, that means that, you know, language isn't, is so complex that it's not controlled simply by one thing, but by oh, many. Look, 
Absolutely. And we've even found that for speech um, conditions. So where we might think that some articulatory um, challenges and might be more, say, motor-based, or there might be particular regions of the brain that are more um, focal or, yeah, single sort of focal or, or more easily identifiable, if you like, than language where we know you draw on a, a larger cognitive network, a larger brain network, if you like. Mm. Um, but even in the children with the more severe speech conditions, the genes we've been identifying are genes that are important for brain development. So it's not they're just genes for speech, they're genes that affect brain development and they do affect regions of the brain important for speech and language, but also often typically for other social skills traits or movement traits, etc. So yes, when we're thinking about language, I think that yes, absolutely, the genetic makeup is going to be so much more complex, uh, many more genes. So sometimes that's called polygenic. You'll hear these polygenic risk scores. That's what people are looking at now for language. Can we get a reading of polygenic? risk um, for individuals that helps predict their language outcomes um, and polygenic just meaning lot, many genes probably affected or carrying risk for a speech and language condition. So yeah, that's quite a different um, scenario. The other thing I think is really good to highlight is that you're absolutely right. When we think about those single gene conditions and we probably think about individuals who have more um, a stronger neurodevelopmental disorder type profile in the old money if you like often we'd use the term syndrome as you know so we had those more well-known classic syndromes and syndromes I mean the word syndrome still just means a cluster of features I suppose but it did come to then mean conditions like down syndrome you know it had a much stronger sense of much more clinically affected cases whereas actually we can have clusters of speech or language traits that, you know, we won't use the word syndrome, but really that, that could be viewed in the same way, that these are clusters of traits that we see that are quite similar and so that they could still have a genetic basis. Um, but, yes, yeah, so the word syndrome is not a great syndrome to use and a word to use, sorry, and we, we don't really use that. But I suppose if we just think about a cluster of features, um, why could that not be genetic? Yes, of course it could be. And we are finding that for speech and we will find that more for language as we go forward and have, have better methods and techniques. And I suppose that was the other thing. Now we can do those large population-based studies because the cost has come right down, the technology is much better. And that's why just in the last couple of years, these sorts of large-scale studies have been possible in our field. And I think that the, the cluster of, of characteristics is a really key um, point I actually will put in my reports and we talked about this in a previous podcast um, around the fact that you know in my opinion a diagnosis is really just a cluster of observable characteristics and that's what we call it and at the moment we use these observational psychosocial measures you know we're looking at and seeing things and trying to make that um, mean you know matter and mean something so that we can get people the right support but um you know, it's really interesting, I think, as our understanding of the genetics, you know, change, what will that mean for even DLD as an identity when D in the DLD, you know, we really add because the cause is unknown, you know, there might be a future where the cause for the language disorder is always known. So I think it's um, a really interesting sort of exciting space to start thinking about, you know, what are we seeing and what does that mean for the young person or the not, or, you know, the adult sitting in front of us? 
Oh, look, absolutely. And I think you've hit so nicely on that. Those observable features are what we call phenotypes. You know, people go, oh, what's that word phenotype? I mean, speech pathologists, I mean, most of our job is phenotyping, that description of observable features. And we're fantastic at that and always have been really fantastic. And I think it's we could be make, having more of a contribution, actually, to some of the field of the genetics of speech and language disorders because there are fantastic bioinformaticians or fancy genetic statisticians um, and other excellent molecular biologists who are working in this space. But often people don't have that phenotypic knowledge. That's what we bring, um, that ability to observe, you know, oh, this person's experiencing word-finding difficulties, the tip of the tongue phenomenon, we've got problems, challenges with word endings. You know, these are things that we do every day, bread and butter. But it's going to be those really nice observations of populations, of people that help us to really pinpoint the genes that are contributing to all of those traits that we've been describing for 100 years now. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really good point that when we hear the word phenotype, we shouldn't get too worried. We do it all Don't the get time. get too scared. <laughs> Just means characterising, yeah, characterising speech and language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what are we seeing right in front of us? And sometimes all we can do is observe what's happening in front of us. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with a colleague a couple of weeks ago where, you know, we talk about, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome or condition. Um, yes. And then how do, you know, actually one really key question is, you know, how, about differential diagnostics with DLD if you don't know. And, and I'm a big... Yeah blokey you know I'm a bloke you know if I'm coming at you in a case history and I'm saying to you now tell me about your mm -hmm. alcohol consumption during pregnancy you know that takes a lot of trust um, yes. for families to divulge some of those and sometimes that's not known so often my response is we, we can only diagnose based on what we can observe and what information we have but the beauty about the diagnostic process it's it's dynamic and as more information comes to light you know Absolutely. We can revisit that. So we can revisit that. Look, I think that's really a really good point. And and that actually also brings up an issue that um, around uh, some of those fears that parents carry as well, that sometimes when we've delivered a genetic diagnosis, families and mothers sometimes in particular have been so relieved because they have honestly carried with them a concern that perhaps the reason for their child's difficulties might have been a couple of glasses of wine that they might have had during pregnancy. So we've had that happen on more than one occasion. So, you know, families do sometimes carry those things with them when it may not necessarily have had any contribution. Of course, a couple of glasses of wine is completely different to fetal alcohol syndrome. Absolutely. Mm. They're completely different things. But it did just make me think about that point because that's been, yeah, a very moving experience that parents have never shared that before, that they've carried that secret concern and the and the, the, of course, it's not wonderful also to receive a genetic diagnosis, but the relief that it wasn't something that they could have controlled because gene changes are just passed down and we can't control those, of course. That's just something that happens spontaneously. Uh, and I mean, I'm somebody, I've actually had um, genetic analysis done for both and I was going to say, I'll check with my wife if this yeah, is well, still in, if this is still in the podcast. It yeah, means, it means that I've share. checked with her. But we, Fantastic. I mean, it's, we've been very public in our IVF journey with our children, and part of the concern was, you know, if there is a genetic cause for it. And I still have very vivid memories of going through that genetic analysis and meeting with the, you know, the counselor and discussing it, and everything was as you would expect it 
to be, but it was very anxiety provoking. I thought, my goodness, what have, what have we done? Or, you know, we didn't even have children at this point. What have we potentially or not potentially passed on? Um, yeah. All POTS impact. So it's very, um, you know, it's private, intimate um, to think about right down to that molecular level. Um, it is. What, what's happening in my body, you know? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We have a fantastic student, Mariana Loretta, who actually did a master's of speech pathology first mm-hmm. and now is a um, doing a master's of genetic counselling. And she's doing uh, a piece of work talking to speech pathologists actually about our role and our perception in, um, in genetics. But it's been great to have her on the team as a genetic counsellor. And I, I really think that we, when we have her now in the clinic um, and we need to have um, somebody with that experience because it hasn't always been that, um, you know, occasionally you could have a gene change that might come with other additional health concerns that, um, you know, where the family hadn't been worried about heart problems or, you know, other thing conditions that might develop alongside that gene condition. We've just been looking for genes linked with speech and language disorder um so of course yeah this is the more challenging side of this area of discovery and um yeah absolutely that counseling aspect's really critical i know myself it was very good for our family to have to think about potentially um, a very nasty neurodegenerative um, disease gene that we had to be assessed for so i really share your thoughts on having gone through that process the, the gravitas of that so i never take that for granted with our families but but yeah it's a nice point to bring up that genetic counseling aspect which i think is really critical even though fortunately for many cases the conditions that we're identifying linked with genes for speech and language don't come with um, other sorts of less yeah I'm not sure what the word is there the not medical concerns yeah. yeah greater medical concerns yeah, yeah. thanks Sean. that's yeah. all right um with this aspect of coming to identify genetic conditions and understanding what this potential genetic basis for DLD is, how do you think that might actually help us and us being a very collective us, families and, you know, teachers and speech pathologists, how might it help us better support people with DLD to have that information? Yeah, look, that's a great question. One of the most obvious for us at the moment in the Australian context is that the NDIS do recognise genetic conditions as a chronic condition. Mm -hmm. So whereas we do struggle sometimes to uh, win uh, advocacy for our families with idiopathic or unknown causes, once we have that genetic cause, you are guaranteed that support. So that's one sort of um, potential benefit. In terms of then tailoring healthcare, um, as you say, the broader we. So sometimes for the speech pathology program, if we do see that it is a condition that's often linked with apraxia, maybe earlier, we might be more confident to give that child a diagnosis that it is going to be motor speech rather than waiting, waiting, waiting um, to employ more targeted therapies. So I think that tailoring of therapies when a gene genetic diagnosis is delivered where we do understand that there are more, as you said before, homogenous group or people who share a lot of similar traits 
um, again, that sense of community or, or advocacy support. So for some of the conditions we study, they have amazing foundations, often run by very passionate families. Um, they then have their own medical board of individuals who are able to give advice and help with guidelines and really advocate for those families to have support. Um, and, you know, I, I do see huge changes then in terms of therapies and directions of therapies for those conditions. So there are many um, foundations who are the ones driving the research in, and research agenda so that there are some conditions where they've already got you know, stem cell therapies um, that people are looking into, gene therapies. Mm. So, um, you know, that's quite interesting. Then there are some trials now happening too, where um, rather than just continue to work on our symptomatology and try and improve our speech and language features and symptoms, they once they've known the biological cause there are some drug therapies where people are trying to target with drug therapy so um i suppose it's yeah trying to get to the underlying nature of why we might have that problem now for dld as we know that's more complex that's going to be not so simple i suppose the examples i'm giving are much more when we've got those single gene hit conditions so i think that's really important to mention um, so for, for probably for DLD, it will be that understanding of how much of a, a genetic risk we might have and carry, and then understanding what that might mean for how intensive our therapy needs to be, et cetera. Maybe we'll get to a point of having such nice knowledge about prognosis or um, that, you know, we could advocate for more support based on what our genetic profile is. I, I mm. would hope that these are some of the ways this information could help us into the future. Nice. Love that because it's something that, you know, we want to know more, but it's always thinking about what's the purpose of knowing more and, you know, enabling people to make informed decisions, I think is also really key, um, not just for those supporting, but also, you know, um, external to the family, but the family yeah. itself, you know, how can you make a decision when you don't hold all the cards? Um, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, I did imaging studies for some time and imaging is still useful to try to understand mechanism. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really, was it ever going to help us tomorrow? No, it was just going to help us understand a bit more about the condition. I do feel like genetics holds more promise for having more, more impact, if you like, or really helping us to change and modify. Yep. But I think you're right. There are all of these different methods and approaches, and we really need to be careful in how we talk about them and what they might offer tomorrow. So for most of our families who take part in our studies, we have to say, well, sometimes we find a gene diagnosis and you have to think about ramifications of that for your health insurance, whether your family want to know about that. Mm. We might have incidental findings. We're looking for genes for speech, but occasionally there might just be some other finding that might crop up that we need to tell you about, how you feel about that. And then for two thirds of people, there won't be a finding. So we have to prepare you that you're getting your hope up potentially if you really want to know that cause and that we might find nothing so um yeah absolutely it's really important to be to be thinking about what you think you might be going to find out or what you think you're signing up to um because there's so many emotions tied up in in these processes and our hopes and what we want to get out of them yeah yeah and this leads so beautifully into my next question which is families reach out 
all the time. Um, in fact, in our, we actually have a little free um, module for families around just an understanding of DLD. And one of the things that we have included is that, you know, there's still a lot we don't know about the genetic basis. And, um, you know, we're still grappling with that. But they will often reach out and say, you know, wanting to understand how or maybe why their loved one has DLD, you know, trying to get to that cause. What might you say to families who are grappling with some of these thoughts and, and you know, trying to make meaning of, of these events? Yeah, I think that's a nice question. Um, I think that it is frustrating, exactly as you said at the outset, to still say it's a complex condition. We feel there are genetic contributions that we know through the family-based studies and twin studies and twin heritability studies as well tell us that there are some genetic links. But at this time, we just don't understand enough to know how much um, for an individual person the genetics might be contributing versus other environmental factors or how environmental factors might might turn on or off or modify the genes for us that might be carrying risk. So I know that's a really frustrating answer. I suppose I think if we, if parents or families really wanted to try and take part in studies, I think there will be increasingly initiatives that um, look to collect data at a population level. So, for example, we've had the genome-wide association study where we're looking at the genetics of stuttering and we've gone straight out to the population of people who experience stuttering themselves and they've been very passionate at taking part. So we've got over a 1,000 individuals who've taken part and shared their own DNA um, and uh, we're now launching in the UK in a couple of weeks' time. We've launched in the Netherlands where many hundreds of people have taken part in New Zealand. So I think there is that lovely movement of individuals who are experiencing the disorder, wanting answers and wanting to contribute and take part. But we need to be careful, as we've just said, about what we're signing up for and people will have to be told exactly what's happening with their DNA. People have the ethics and governance of that's very strict, as you would imagine. Um, so perhaps over time you'll see offers for some of these sorts of studies for people to take part. But at the moment they're going to be very much at that population-based level and it's unlikely you'll get a lot of individual um, personal information that will be able to tell you um, whether or not there is a genetic cause for your own specific DLD. Probably where there might be more likely to be genetic causes are where we said before individuals with DLD also carry other challenges where they might experience learning difficulties, um, movement difficulties. So for some of those individuals, if they'd like to seek more information and feel that um, maybe their child or themselves might have a genetic cause or there's a big family history of this um, issue, then you could see your GP and start to talk to them about that and see whether they would refer you on for further genetic testing. There are different levels of genetic testing, which is probably a bit beyond our scope for today, um, but uh, needless to say that Medicare doesn't really at this time fund gene sequencing or, gen or more sophisticated genetic tests for identifying genes for speech or language conditions, let alone DLD, um, not, not even for apraxia at this time. So we're trying to gather information to lobby and advocate um, for Medicare to open up and, and consider in some instances where we do see that cluster of features or phenotype that looks like it might be linked to a genetic condition where we hope that Medicare might open up um, and, yes, take take speech and language disorders um, perhaps as seriously as we would like them to. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm. Um, and I, 
I just keep on thinking about those families that reach out, you know, that are looking for, you know, um, sort of an understanding. And I think that um, one response that I've been trialling, and I think, you know, it depends on the person as being that no matter whether we label people or not, they were, they're the same person they were before the label. You know, that label actually doesn't change who they are. It's more about us better understanding their needs and how and them understanding their needs and how we as communication partners, family members can support them. Um, and that we often get, you know, caught up sometimes in the label or the diagnosis more so than understanding that they're actually the same person. Like they could have gone unknown for that particular condition their entire lives. And in fact, people will say to me, where are all the adults with DLD? And I said, yes. well, based on current you know, statistics, we should probably have about 1.7 to 1.8 million people with TLD in Australia. Um, I can guarantee that they would be undiagnosed. Um, Absolutely. And so, and they're living their everyday lives, not knowing that they do have or potentially have these communication needs. Um, How does the label actually either help or maybe hinder, you know, an individual, you know, they were going to be whoever they were before or after. So, you know, it's, it's, giving the label only as much power as it needs to have. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we talked about, well, how could that help? And I suppose the examples where we talked about future therapies that might be targeted at that gene change, of course, they're future therapies. So you're absolutely right, Sean, is that we say that to families, even if we give you that answer today and you receive a genetic diagnosis through this process, it won't change at this point in time how we are managing the speech and language. So the genetics of language and DLD are clearly quite complicated, as we've discussed, Um, and there's a lot that we don't know yet. Um, But if you were to hypothesise, what do you think future research into the genetics of DLD could actually reveal? Yes, okay, that's a good question. I think, yes, it's probably a bit repetitive with what we've talked about previously. but That's okay. Going pull to it reveal, all together. Pull it all together again. <laughs> I think it is going to reveal that there are tens, maybe hundreds of genes that are um, involved in contributing contributing to different DLD language profiles, and that also we will go on to find different environmental triggers that also modify or change um, our genetic makeup as well to to contribute to. Um, and not only the risk, I suppose I've talked a lot and emphasised a lot the, the risk of having um, DLD, but also we'll learn, if you like, protective factors as well for language outcomes. And I think that's a huge area that's very undiscovered. I think we've sort of gone to understanding what we think we could know a little bit more now. Um, and some of the challenges you sort of even touched on that with adults, whether or not they'd be able to identify they have DLD. What about um, individuals who don't necessarily have DLD, but they might be somewhere on the range of the language performance spectrum, maybe not quite DLD, but yet not a really high language performer. Um, and so for some of these studies to really understand the full range of genetic contributions to language, not only language challenges, we need um, huge amounts of data and we need individuals in the community to to be able to take part and people who have high language performance skills. So that's sort of what the next stage is, trying to measure language abilities across the whole population, language strengths as well as language challenges to really understand not only risk um, and the different genes that might be involved in in carrying that um, risk for for DLD, but also in resilience 
and, and protective factors for language outcomes too. And then, as I said as well, the importance of the environment. So it's easy to forget about the environment. We're all excited about measuring the genes at the moment because that's the technology we've got to hand and that's been quite fruitful. But if you like, it's a bit the low hanging fruit in some ways, as complex as that is, getting to the next stage of gene environment interactions, we're going to need even larger samples and to have collected the right environmental information in the first place. So. I've probably more said what we need to do rather than what I see happening. <laughs> but um, yeah, hopefully these are the things that will start to unravel. Um, I do think the environmental impacts and diet and other things that we haven't even tapped into in our field could be a really exciting new area and avenue for research that will open up. Um, but I think that's just too far on the horizon to say much more about now, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one thing that you've said a couple of times is probably all technology dependent you know the further we progress with our technological advancements the probably the, the more likely we'll be able to do new or different or better or faster or cheaper or, or you know absolutely any and of this work yeah, the, the gene environment or epigenetics, as they say, there's a method, yeah, methylation. There are different approaches starting to come that are important now. And what people are starting to do now is you might have a condition. So, for example, there's a condition CDK13. That's one of the gene names, CDK13 related condition. People have identified an epigenetic marker in, in that condition because they've got the genetics, they understand the condition, now they're going back to see are there epigenetic markers for that condition. Um, and people are even looking to see whether they can identify gene changes in individuals looking at those epigenetic markers rather than doing the full gene sequencing. So that's probably all getting a bit more complicated, but it's a really nice example that actually um, how quickly that field is moving um, but that's for known conditions at the moment, but soon we'll be able to do that for known phenotypes um, like DLD, but probably a little way into the future for us, yeah. More to come. Yeah. The, I feel like the next question we've probably answered, but I might just ask it so that we can probably pull it maybe together, um, is do you have any advice for families who are interested in exploring their genetics or the genetic, you know, history? So... Obviously, you talked about the GP referral and participating in studies um, yeah. and, you know, being really open. Is there anything else, you know, that you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so I think, um, yes, there's a taking part in studies if you have DLD that's probably not so... Um, where you have DLD that doesn't necessarily come with a lot of other medical conditions or um, other learning difficulties or challenges. But if you do have a child or maybe yourself where you feel that, okay, I've got DLD, but I also have really struggled in my education. Um, I really have had, uh, say, developmental coordination disorder or movement challenges for most of my life as well. I really am somewhere experiencing autism spectrum disorder disorder, if you feel that you do um, have many other conditions that you share, you could talk to your GP, um, as I mentioned before. What GPs will normally do, something that is funded under Medicare, and it's, a and again, a terrible acronym, chromosomal uh, microarray, but chromosomal, the name's what it says on the tin, it's going to look at your chromosomes and see if there are any large deletions, bits of chromosome missing or duplication, additional bits of chromosome. Most most of our people do it. They will absolutely not have 
any findings on a, on a chromosomal microarray. But what the GP might then do is they could consider referring you to a clinical geneticist. So it's sort of if you've got those shared features we've talked about, or if you come from a large family. So I work with some fabulous families of, say, three or four generations, or sometimes just two generations, but where lots of people in the family do have DLD. Those families um, also can go to a clinical geneticist um, and might be referred by their GP um, because in those cases, there looks to be a very strong history. Mm. Um, and so we have had instances of individuals, even though it's not really Medicare funded, perhaps there have been other features, some autism features in the family or other features that mean that they're eligible for having publicly funded gene sequencing and trying to identify a gene change that looks quite dominant running through that family. So yeah, it's the pathway is really GP um, and then whether the GP feels they would then refer you on to a clinical geneticist. But in Mariana Loretta, my, the master's genetics of master's counselling students work where we're talking to speech pathologists, it's really interesting. We don't feel that's part of our remit often. We feel like that's something doctors would do. Um, so it's that's interesting too. So often the families might drive that referral process if they're really interested. But I think um, that our, as speech pathologists, I, I know I've got a really lovely broad readership here, or also teachers, the original KE family who are large British family in whom the first gene associated with speech and language can, dis disorders was identified, um, FOXP2 gene, it was a principal, school principal, who'd seen many generations of this family come through his school that felt this is a really dominant condition. I've sort of seen the um, grandma, the mum, and now the next generation coming through, I'm going to refer that family to a clinical geneticist. So many health professionals, of course, could help refer, or families can refer themselves as well. Fascinating. I actually thought I knew a fair bit about the FOXP2 gene story and that bit I did not know. That's a really nice story, actually. Yes. Yeah, so, fascinating. Yeah, I was lucky to do my postdoc in London and um, with some of the original researchers and mm. I did people who identified the FOXP2 gene. And um, no, that was a lovely um, part of the story. And they're a really wonderful family. They've really given a lot to research and very passionate about wow. their involvement in, in research. And really, it did springboard the whole field, actually. Mm. So, um, yeah, amazing. Sort of set a fire. Yeah, they really did. Yeah. Mm, amazing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, families, incredibly important in, you know, genetic research. Absolutely. Yeah. And remain, remain really important. But yeah, as the methods have evolved, I think people sort of went more for these de novo models where mum and dad might not have anything but the child might for the first time. Um, and, but I think, yeah, the family models are always still really important and really strong. Yeah. Great. So in your, we've, in your opinion, what would you hope to see in the future for DLD, whether it's research, as we've talked about, or maybe clinical work or service delivery? We ask all of our um, guests this question, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yes, I think at the moment I, I still struggle 25 years on with the lack of community understanding. So, Sean, I think what you and Natalie and others do um, with your program and your amazing work and others involved in, in DLD work, I think that community awareness of speech and language, for me, I feel like that's what I'm 
most hoping for uh, to see that the average person on the street would understand what DLD is just as they understand what autism is because you know of course we know DLD is just so common and, and experienced and shared by so many people but it still astounds me and I feel like somehow I've failed in my many years <sighs> to raise awareness in that way um, so I yeah I, I really feel very passionate about that so I think it's great the work that you that you're doing um my nerdy brain does like to go back into brains and genes and do those things and I'm not a great at social media and engagement and all of the other important things we should do um, share the load but, <laughs> is yeah, what I say let's share, share the load, load. <laughs> yeah so I'll put all the pressure onto you to continue flying <laughs> happy to do that that's what I hope in the future more pressure on Sean and Matt and others yeah. to <laughs> that's what I would like to see before I retire that people you know speech and language conditions these DLD apraxia too if I may of throw course. that in there oh, look, um, please <laughs> yeah look we can't throw everything out I always say you know there's such a high correlation between speech and language you know, I'm very passionate about language, but clinically, you know, we're working on speech and language simultaneously and literacy and often all these other things. So That's it's... It. Phonology links it know, all together, yeah. We kind of, you know, discreetly box, but really the no. world is not quite so neat, is it? I, I completely agree. We try to tell our students more the black and white, but um, when we're training in academic programs, but I think, yeah, that nice reporting of those observable features and what you're going to work on, what's having the greatest impact for individuals, that's what's more important than the label. I think that's really true. And it's the same of the genetic um, label as well. At the end of the day, what are the features uh, where people need support and, um, and help? So the labeling or the diagnosis is absolutely not everything, whether it be, a clinical one or a genetic one um yeah i think that um our shared vision would be a, a future where people actually know about dld um yeah. hopefully that will i i'm optimistic and i'm optimistic <laughs> if anyone can do it i think you guys can oh. yeah dld and cas dld and apraxia yeah. yes we are and i i you know it's it's funny because um you know you give me a straight articulation you know disorder or a phonological disorder and I think oh you know that's 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 you know not my jam but gosh I love when you have these complex overlays of childhood apraxia of speech and DLD and you really have to stop and think and analyze and I've had some beautiful families just beautiful families where you're trying to sort of help them you know while you're making head nor mm -hmm. tails of you know, this um, clinical profile of skills and, and got help gently guide these, you know, wonderful families, you think. Um, it's, it's interesting. It gets you going, you know, back into the clinic, doing that work or, you know, the research, because it is, it, it, I find it, you know, something that is very motivating. And I like working in that sort of more, um, you know, those, what people might consider a complex profile, but I think is just a really interesting profile of speech yeah. and language and how it comes together. Um, yeah. And, you know, if there's this high overlap, there has to be some relationship there going on that we're still working out, aren't we, you know? 
Absolutely. And I hope that that, yes, I hope the biology might give us a clue to that. I think it is so complex, it's hard to know. But we do have a few conditions at the moment where we're working with families where, say, stuttering has become quite a feature alongside apraxia. So, and, and others of us study populations of, of individuals without genetic conditions where we look at overlap between apraxic features and fluency features, etc. So these are sorts of questions of all time that come around for us in speech with the phenotyping or observable features that we keep talking about. But getting now to the biology might help us understand whether there are some other shared pathways, whether it be in the brain or these gene pathways that, that then lead to why those phenotypes or those features of apraxia and stuttering are closely linked, et cetera. Yeah, so, yeah, you do hope that um, we'll gain some more insights to, to understand those phenotypes. But, um, yeah, as you say, it's, it is really rewarding and I think you also work more closely with the family sometimes in those instances because of the impacts that these conditions can have for the family. So, um, yep. you know, really that deep human connection where you're trying to desperately understand what's going on for them so you can help them. Oh. And that's, as you say, exactly. Speech pathology is a relationship, a relationship based profession. I really, I really feel very strongly that it's through those relationships that we do our best work, but, you know. Great. I agree. And why many of us were drawn to the field, I think, really, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. How, how can we help? Can we please try and try and help? And yeah, exactly. So we're starting to draw to a close. And I do have one more question before we wrap up. And at, so at the DLD project, we're focused, focused on self-care. We try to be, and Nat probably laughs as she edits this, but yeah. um, we do try to be focused on self-care and finding time to in breathe. in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> breathe in our busy days. <laughs> Don't joke. I think Nat and I both finished working at about 12.30 last night, but that's mm -hmm. okay. I'm not surprised, yes. Mm. But as a busy researcher, what do you do to look after yourself? I think probably my team or people who have seen me over the last decade or so would say, so I haven't been great at that with two small children and other mm. things. And it does show, it does show. So I've noticed, particularly during COVID, I really have to take time out to exercise and um, I've started swimming. I'm the world's worst swimmer, as anyone at my local pool would tell you, but I really have found that to be fantastic. And I find if I'm, if I've had my swim, I'm a much better mentor and support of everybody and trying to keep the plates um, plates going. So I am being tougher on myself about that. Whereas, yeah, previously I would always let that slip and just spend more hours working and feel the guilt, the terrible guilt that we always carry about. I need to get that done. I need to check those emails. I need to do this, which I, I did that for years, but now I see I'm, I'm better for everybody and myself if I go for that swim. I was going to say <laughs> self-care, it's important, but yeah. We don't think it is necessarily at the time, but mm. no, no. Sounds like we need to work with you and Nat to get those <laughs> bedtimes back to. <laughs> Look, it was an exception, not the norm. Good. I am, I am dropping the girls at netball and then going uh, to the gym Lovely. myself. So you know, that's Good. my uh, plan for this afternoon after we finish up. Good. So yeah, we got to we've got to try and breathe a little bit of it into our everyday lives, otherwise it just doesn't happen. Yeah, that's right. So. Just to recap today's podcast, what would you say are the key points you'd like our listeners to take away from our chat? You go first and I'll see if there's anything I'll add. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds really nice, Sean. So I suppose um, it is a positive future, I think, in terms of where families are really keen to identify 
uh, causation. I do think that even with the the two larger population studies that have been performed that are a little bit more yeah dyslexia or reading skill focused, um, but we can see on the horizon that there really is a push to better understand genetic causes of, of DLD and many groups focused now. There is a group called Gen Lang, actually. I know we should be recapping and not entering new information here, but <laughs> Simon Fisher sort of oversees this great Gen Lang consortium where we have, I think there are probably a hundred or so researchers now internationally wow. focused on this endeavor. So whilst it was frustrating probably for people today to hear we don't have definitive answers there are a few gene loci or a few genes of interest mm. um, but we just haven't overemphasized them yet because we don't really understand how they contribute to an individual's presentation of DLD so I think that's um, one thing to take away and also that if you feel you've got that really strong family history you're really interested that you could follow up with your GP of course people are always welcome to contact us as well so we love to support people and try and link them up with their local clinical geneticists and sometimes we also can work with families too but I didn't want to spruik ourselves too much here <laughs> that's um, okay go for it so there are a couple of things to take away and also importantly that even if we don't know um, what what the cause is at this time as much as that can be frustrating um, as we've said Sean right now even if you've got a genetic diagnosis we're still going to be working on the features that we need to treat and support and manage so um, I think that's that's really a core cool thing to take away that that the genetics work is having impacts probably more for those individuals with a praxia of speech or single gene conditions but for DLD at the moment let's just keep focused on what we can do and achieve uh, with supporting people and everyday functional outcomes um, and yeah that's pretty positive really I think. I think that we know that we're on this continuum you know on a, on a journey and that why I think this is really helpful is, and why I certainly approached you was A, because I love talking about genetics, as you know, my, uh, I think people are often surprised that my background initially was in science before <laughs> speech pathology. Um, so, you know, this is, a, this is me nerding out a little bit. Um, but um, I think the thing is, we do get so many families that have these questions. And I really wanted to showcase um, for people listening in that it's actually really common for people to have these questions. Uh, and that the answers aren't all there yet, but there are some processes that we can, you know, some steps that we can start to take together. Um, and I think that by pulling together, I think as a community, and I always focus on, you know, what do I want the DLD project to achieve? It's like, I really want us to have a community, you know, the DLD, bring together the DLD community. And that's not um, just clinicians and researchers, but it's, it's first and foremost, the people and their families. How do we come together and um, have this shared experience. And I think that, um, you know, understanding that we're on this journey together is really important. I hope that in a few years, we might have an update podcast or, you know, paper or something, and we'll, we'll probably talk about it again, because I think that this is a topic that is going to change significantly over the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 20 years we've got long innings in us and we've got you know <laughs> you think so if we keep up the gym and the swimming we'll be here in 10 years at least <laughs> I was going to say we're definitely nowhere near end of career so we've oh. got plenty of time ahead of us no, you admitted before oh. you're an 80s baby so come oh, on you've got no, more years than me but that's okay I was going to say you're giving away inside <laughs> secrets here and um you know but we're starting with you know we're starting to see that there is this you know journey that we're on and I hope Absolutely. that we'll continue to check in and share this as um you know more information comes to light and I think that's really exciting. 
I think so too. Look, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think the group in the Netherlands, I'm Fisher's group and the driving that he's doing is really astounding and the funding that they have to do that. Um, and I've every faith that group will really drive things in the DLG space and Diane Newbury and other groups, Michelle Lincoln. There's so many wonderful researchers who are driving work in that population-based space. So I think that um, I'd say we'll be hopefully back even in two years' time, might I be so brave. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see Sounds if good that to me. Uh, plays out, Sean. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Talking DLD podcast, Talk Genetics. No, oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, yeah, I'm always happy for families or individuals to reach out if that's helpful as well or um, let me know if there were things that weren't clear that we should help clarify. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Sean. Amazing work. Thank you. Thanks so much to Professor Angela Morgan for that detailed discussion on DLD and genetics. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share it with your networks. If you are seeking to grow your understanding of DLD, check out our live workshops and on-demand training available now at thedldproject.com. 